History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 417th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're doing another one of the favorites for our listeners, Haunted Cemeteries number 21. Woohoo! It's really cool. We just had Jerry and Tracy of Hillbilly Horror Stories here at the house for breakfast. We sure did. And I'm feeling very full. <laughs> <laughs> but we had great conversation and great time hanging out there here for the University of Kentucky Wildcats playing in the uh, Citrus Bowl. Yep. Today. So good luck to them. Yeah. It was so much fun. We had a great time. Also, speaking of cemeteries, we had the devastating news that Betty White has passed away. This is true. National treasure. The thing I wanted to point out is that Ryan Reynolds was one of her co-stars in the movie The Proposal. And he was writing a tribute to her on Twitter. And at the end, he said, now you know the secret. And a lot of people were wondering what that was about. And apparently, she had asked her mom at some point when she was younger, what happens to you after you die? And her mom had told her that it was a secret but you get to find out when you die. This is true. So that's so now what we, she knows. That's what we always talk about on here. None of us really <laughs> knows what happens after you die until you get there. And for some reason, we're not able to tell people who are still living <laughs> right. exactly what happens. But we're going to talk about some of those that seem to be sticking around in the afterlife near their bodies in these graveyards. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spectacular crew, Mara, who spells her name M-A-U-R-R-A, Shalon, Alex, who is the host of the Spooky Stuff podcast, Jason, Ted, I hope I say this right, Kayla, and that's spelled K-E-I-L-A, Kelly with an I-E, Jean, and Riley with an R-Y-L-E-E. Thank you for joining us in our Facebook group. Even though Kelly doesn't spell her name right? Actually, when I was young, <laughs> I would actually spell my name that way because I thought it was cooler. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so when I was joking and saying, oh, well, they spell it the right way last week, you know, I was the You're wanna, full of it. I was the wannabe that wanted the little eye so I could put a little heart instead of a dot. And, <laughs> <laughs> and now this moment, Noddy. The moment in oddity was suggested by Jim Featherstone. The grave of Julia Bucalapetta is found in Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. She is known as the Italian Bride, and her burial is quite odd. It's not because of the grandiose statue erected over her grave that is a duplicate of her wedding photo, or that she was buried in her wedding dress because she was considered a martyr for having died during childbirth. And it isn't because her child, who also died in childbirth, is buried with her. The odd thing here is that Julia's mother had her exhumed in 1927 after being buried for six years, and Julia's body was found in a state of non-decay. She looked lifelike, as though only sleeping. Her skin was still soft and supple. A picture was taken and we agree that Julia looks like she was just buried. However, the baby is in a state of decay, as is the coffin. 
This indicates that this wasn't some kind of trick played by Julia's mother. The mother had claimed to have dreams of her daughter for those six years, with Julia saying in those dreams that she was still alive and needed her mother's help. No one could explain what had happened here other than a really great embalming job and or corpse wax, which is formed during decomposition. Julia's mother not only raised money after the exhumation to build the memorial, but she also attached two pictures to the grave. One was the wedding photo and the other was the post-mortem picture after exhumation. The story of the Italian bride certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of January, on the 11th in 1775, Francis Salvador became the first Jewish person elected to office in the Americas. Salvador's family were Sephardic Jews from London. His grandfather brought a group of Jewish settlers to Savannah, Georgia in 1733. They then bought land in South Carolina. Salvador's great-grandfather had been the first Jewish director of the East India Company. When that business collapsed and the family's land in Portugal was destroyed in an earthquake, Salvador decided to follow his grandfather's path to America and set himself up in South Carolina in 1773 with a plan to send for his wife and children later. He was elected to that seat on the South Carolina Provincial Congress a little over a year later. Salvador was a strong supporter of the independence movement, and he soon was known as the Southern Paul Revere after riding 30 miles through backcountry settlements to warn them of a Cherokee attack. He later would himself be attacked by a group of Cherokee and loyalists while leading a militia group. He was shot and scalped, but lived long enough to find out that his group had won the engagement. He was 29 when he died and was recorded as the first Jewish soldier to die in the war for independence. We love our cemeteries around here. They are places of such peace and for many of us, strangely, a place of comfort. And as we have found, many have a spirit or two unable to let go of their terrestrial bonds. On this episode, we're going to share some of the burial practices of rural families at the turn of the 20th century and some of the traditions that are still carried on in cemeteries today. We also have several more haunted cemeteries to share from Ohio, Oregon, California, and Indiana. Join us as we share Haunted Cemeteries number 21. Listener Tammy Burroughs got some interesting information from her genealogy group that we thought would be fun to share with all you guys. When death occurred among rural families at the turn of the 20th century, the body of the deceased was prepared for burial by neighbors and or family members. And thank you that we don't have to do that anymore. I agree. <laughs> I mean, if our next door neighbors drop dead, I would not want to have to be the one to go over there and take care of things. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> This was done by placing the corpse on a cooling board, which was generally a wooden plank between a couple of chairs, and then they'd wash the body and put clean clothes on the deceased. Back in the day, this was either their Sunday best or a burial shroud. Coins were placed over the eyelids to keep the eyes shut, 
and a cloth was tied around the head and under the chin to keep the mouth closed. Rigor mortis set in within two to three hours, so all of this needed to be done quickly. Before the advent of the embalming process, few preservatives were available. Those that were, however, were either liquids or mixed with a liquid. Placed on a white cloth, they were administered primarily to the face. Turpentine was often used, though the most commonly available preservative was camphor, made of camphor gum and pure liquor. In both cases, the drenched cloth was applied repeatedly to the dead person's face to try to stop it from changing or turning black. If the coffin had been completed, the body was placed in it. If not, the corpse remained on the cooling board until it was finished. The job of making the coffin fell to the neighbors and or family. While they were busy building it out of pine or oak, then lining it, other neighbors took on the task of digging the grave. While these activities were carried out mainly in the day, in the evening, an all-night vigil around the corpse began. You know, I guess I do kind of miss the idea of it being a community event, where you just kind of, instead of having a cookie party like we did a couple of weeks ago, y'all get together <laughs> nice and thing to relate it to, hang out with a corpse. <laughs> but it would have built your community, I would think, if you're well, having to take care of each other's yes, I'm sure. deceased. Setting up with the body or the wake was universally known, and it usually occurred on the night immediately following the death. The custom which found its way into the North Carolina backcountry via Scottish-Irish settlers served several purposes. It was a time of making sure the deceased had truly died, and it allowed friends and family to pay their last respects. Animals and insects were kept away from the body. When tansy was in bloom, and I'm assuming that's some kind of a flower, it was commonly used because insects were repelled by its scent. Burial in the cemetery took place as soon as possible because it was impractical to keep a body out for even a short amount of time. Some burials took place on the same day of death because the bodies were in such poor condition. Most were interred within one to three days. It was really dependent on the state of decay of the body and whether the coffin or grave were done. Graves were usually dug by several men in the community. When asked what was done with corpses in the winter if the ground was frozen, Raymond Coynes, 88-year-old resident of Stokes County, stated that they went ahead and buried them. We never stood back on the ground being frozen. If necessary, a fire was built to thaw the ground some. Other people dealt with frozen ground differently. One woman's solution was to store her dead husband's body in their corn crib until the ground thawed in the spring. To reach the place of burial, which was either the family cemetery or the church, the coffin was often placed on a wagon drawn by mules or horses. Once there, the coffins were lowered into the ground using ropes or plow lines, whichever was on hand. Planks were then laid across the top of the vault to cover the top of the coffins. Then dirt was put on top of the planks to complete the grave. Cemeteries mostly face east towards the rising sun, associating the deceased with the Christian belief of resurrection. Trees and plants commonly found in cemeteries include dogwood, cedar, and periwinkle. All of these are referred to as evergreen. And of course, the whole thing of it being evergreen has that symbolic meaning. And specifically to each one of these trees, the dogwood stands for love and adversity, cedar stands for nobility, and periwinkle stands for sweet memories of unerring devotion. And as we know, garden cemeteries became the most popular form of cemetery, giving families a beautiful place to spend time with their deceased loved ones. And some of these places are haunted. Here are a few more of them. So we're going to start with the Milan Cemetery. Milan Cemetery is located in Milan, Ohio. 
The cemetery is bordered by St. Anthony's Catholic Cemetery and Galpin Wildlife Sanctuary. It was founded in 1851 and has over 7,000 burials, many of them early pioneers. Two of those pioneers were Benjamin and Lorena Abbott. Benjamin died in 1854 and a mausoleum was built for him. The unusual thing about it is that it faced away from all the other monuments. And the location was down an embankment near a swamp-like body of water. Mr. Abbott clearly wasn't interested in having visitors to his grave. And it didn't help that legends started growing up around the mausoleum. People claimed that if you knocked on the door, the ghost of Mr. Abbott would chase you away. Sometimes his wife would get in on the action, too. Along with Benjamin and his wife, their two granddaughters were buried in the vault. The two died of natural causes, as happened to many children in the 1800s. But legends claim that the two girls died at the hands of their grandfather and that he buried their bodies in the back area of his property. After they were discovered, they were placed in the vault. The bodies were actually buried on the Abbott property, as family sometimes did at that time. But new owners wanted them removed, so they were then placed in the vault. So the story about their grandfather killing them and burying them in the backyard. Yes, he buried them in the backyard, but they died of natural causes. And then you have these new people coming in going, let's get these graves out of here. So it's a pretty tame story as compared to the murder story. But as we know, moving bodies can have haunting consequences. I'd love to know what's going on at that old homestead. Another interesting tidbit is that Mr. and Mrs. Abbott are no longer in the tomb, having been moved to a different plot. And we're not sure why. The granddaughters remain, though. So I don't understand why you build this mausoleum for these people. Then you move them out and leave the granddaughters there and put them somewhere else. I don't know if they had other family members they wanted to put them near. And perhaps that movement also has caused problems. There are claims of strange lights in Milan Cemetery at night. People claim that these lights are the spirits of the Abbots making their way around the cemetery. And then we have two cemeteries that were suggested to us by our listener, Angel Macias. The first is Eugene Pioneer Cemetery. The Eugene Pioneer Cemetery is one of the three oldest cemeteries in Eugene and is basically located right next to the University of Oregon in Eugene. This covers 16 acres with about 5,000 burials. Prime real estate in the university's eyes, which had once planned to expand the campus there. But that clearly never happened, thankfully. Three different sessions of the Oregon State Legislature had bills introduced trying to condemn the property and have the graves removed, with the last one occurring in 1963. And as should be the case, the cemetery was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1997. The cemetery was founded in 1872 by the Spencer Butt Lodge, number 9 of the Independent Order of Oddfellows. The biggest area of the cemetery is the Grand Army of the Republic burial plot, which is in the center of the cemetery. General John W. Geary bought the plot in 1887, and there are 57 graves here, with 51 of them being Civil War veterans. The center features a 25-foot statue of a Union soldier. This is an eight-short-ton statue that was brought here by an eight-horse team from Vermont and financed by the Union veteran John Covell's estate in 1903. Can you imagine bringing a 25-foot statue here by horse all the way from Vermont to... No, <laughs> it's quite a distance. Oregon, that's all the way across the country. The head of the statue is not original. Vandals broke into the cemetery in December of 2001 and pulverized the head. Local artist David Miller remade the head from Vermont Blue Marble, and it was rededicated on Memorial Day in 2003. More restoration was done to the memorial plot in 2007. Another notable burial here is for Louis Renninger, who was awarded the Medal of Honor in the American Civil War. Angel wrote, 
I've taken occasional strolls through the cemetery heading home from lab, and unfortunately, although I use that term hesitantly, haven't seen or experienced anything firsthand. Definitely one of our people. Yeah, I'd say so. (laughs) However, common stories include hearing the sound of bagpipes late at night, movement of statues, and the classic woman in white. Stories about the woman in white claim that she does more than just walk around the cemetery. She appears to clean some of the headstones, so she acts as a caretaker. The movement of statues Angel mentions is said to happen on a particular night of the year around midnight. All the statues are said to get in on the action as they walk around and seem to talk to each other. It's like a little soiree. (laughs) Little party in the graveyard. (laughs) That would be really creepy to see all these statues like hanging around each other and talking to each other. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. Kelly, I don't know what I've gotten started here, but this <laughs> Best Fiends has got me hooked. I am obsessed. Yeah, I kind of figured as much when I woke up the other morning and I looked over and you were playing it in the dark in bed. <laughs> Honestly, I never play any games on my phone, but I was like, I'm going to go ahead and download Best Fiends and see what it's like because I've seen you playing with it. Well, I'm totally obsessed. I play it all the time. It's so much fun. It has great sound effects. The visuals are great. The little fiends are so cute. And then you're trying to get these meteor mites. Is that what they're called? Indeed. And you got to get a ton of them so that you can upgrade your fiends, which means basically you're following the storyline where they're babies and then you give them these meteor mites, which grows them up into bigger. It's like they become adolescents and adults. Right. You evolve them. Yeah, so they evolve as you go. So it's so much fun. And this is one of those fun match three games. Or as I found, you can match like 10, 12. They have these bombs that they drop where you can take the whole thing out. It's just great. (laughs) They always say games are for kids, but why should kids have all the fun? This is true. We should have fun too. We're just big kids anyway, though. They've had 100 million downloads. Why don't you become the next one? It is free to download. Just look up Best Fiends on the App Store or Google Play and download it today for free. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. You'll be glad you did. The other cemetery that Angel suggested to us is Spadra Cemetery. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this one, Kelly, but it's in California. Spadra was once a grand town, but today it is completely forgotten because there's not much left of it. There's the Phillips Mansion and the Spadra Cemetery, and that's it. This is a small place near California State Route 57 in Pomona. I used to drive past there all the time. I went to Cal Poly Pomona. Now, all it has left is this mansion and a cemetery, so. I'm trying to think. There was, I remember a small, I thought it was a Native American cemetery. It's just like very, very small. That might be this one. Was it behind a chain link fence? Yeah. That was probably it. Oh, how funny. Ricardo Vejar and Ignacio Palomares received a Mexican land grant in 1837. Vahar built his Rancho San Jose de Abajo on the southern portion of this grant, but was eventually forced to sell the property. A Prussian Jewish immigrant named Louis Phillips started managing the ranch, and he did so well with it that he eventually bought it and started selling plots of it to settlers coming to the area. This developed into the town of Spadra. The name comes from Spadra Bluff in Arkansas, where many of the settlers had come from. 
This grew into a prominent city and was the dominant town in the Pomona Valley. So it was big time there at one point. Very cool. The Butterfield Stagecoach and Southern Pacific Railroad both stopped here. The Spadra Cemetery was established in 1868 out of a need for a burial place for non-Catholics. Melinda Arnett was the first person buried there that year. Many prominent citizens of the town would follow, including Phillips and his wife, Esther. The cemetery was deeded to the Spadra Cemetery Association for $1 in 1897. There are around 200 people buried here. The last burial was here in 1965. Spadra's moment in the sun ended and the railroad left along with the businesses. The people left and their cemetery fell into disrepair. Today, it's still a jumble of broken and missing tombstones. The Historical Society of Pomona Valley owns the cemetery, and the president, Deborah Clifford, said, This has long been a happy hunting ground for anyone with a Ford F-150 and a chain. You roll in, lasso a headstone, and take it with you. Lovely. Yeah, I always hate that. Perhaps this is why the spirits are at unrest in this cemetery. Many who have visited come away completely creeped out by their experiences. Jonathan R. wrote on Yelp, After walking around with a bunch of friends for a while, we decided to leave. However, on our way out, the girls in the group ran out from feeling a hand grab them. One girl stayed behind, and once we were out, she took a picture of the exit, and what we found in the picture was really scary. A tall, slim-like figure with a very distorted face appeared in the picture. Ever since then, I have not gone back. Rudy M. shared his experience after visiting the cemetery. We were on the 10 freeway almost back home. About 20 minutes after leaving, I felt this overwhelming feeling of death. I felt so panicked and controlled, like something attacked me in my homie's car. I asked my grandpa to pray for me once I got home. This place is truly haunted and demonic. One of the famous spirits here is James Fryer. He likes to make disembodied noises and shows up as a full-bodied apparition. He was a man who died in 1921. A paranormal investigator named Huesca has been to the cemetery multiple times and had a run-in with Fryer's ghost. He said, Out of nowhere I felt strange, and from the corner of my eye I saw this dark figure just look over my shoulder. It either wanted me to get out or make itself known, but it was really creepy. A local named Wayne Owings, who didn't believe in ghosts, had his own experience. He said, I seen him. I ain't lying. Heard something, and I looked. Standing right there. Owings claimed that the figure was dressed in an old-fashioned black suit with a vest. Our next cemetery is Cherokee Cemetery, and this was suggested by our listener, Shi Xiong, and hopefully I said that right. Cherokee Cemetery is located at 3927 Cherokee Road in Oroville, California. This is a private cemetery governed by the Cherokee Cemetery Association. Ed Campbell is a sextant, and it's something that is run in his family. Both his father and brother were sextants at the cemetery. The cemetery has a lot of evergreen plantings. Plots are marked out in borders of concrete. The front gates are metal and have the name Cherokee Cemetery near the top of the gates. There's a legend that in the 1800s, a girl in the town was murdered by a man that lived in a house across from the cemetery. The town took vengeance by burning him alive in that house. People visiting the cemetery have heard his loud, heavy footsteps. There are also claims of loud, blood-curdling, disembodied screams. Another legend claims that if you place flowers on the grave of a child who died on the same day as his father, his apparition will visit you and thank you, and we're unsure of what that child's name is, so maybe you just have to put flowers on all the child's graves. Several people say they've seen a young boy hiding behind a tree or a gravestone, and the faint laughter of a child is heard sometimes. A woman named Cynthia claimed to see a woman in white standing near the entrance when she visited in July of last year 
which were January 1st of 2022 today. So that would have been 2021. Doc wrote, I lived near the Cherokee Cemetery for years, right behind where the murderer was burned in his home. Many unusual things would happen at the cemetery and surrounding homes. One time after out-of-town friends thought it would be fun to visit the cemetery at night, we had a couple weeks of music boxes playing by themselves. Lights turning on and off, and eerie silence when the area was a haven for many birds and bugs. Apparently, if we go based on what he said here, I don't know if he actually was aware that this murder had been burned in that home, was around at that time, or if he just is saying this supposedly is where the guy lived. Right. Kelly wrote, my brother lives in nearby Paradise, so when I go to visit, I like to go to the nearby old cemeteries. We were at Cherokee Cemetery, and there was a fresh grave dug for a burial the next day, I guess. The grave was right next to the main gate of the cemetery. I took some pictures of the gate and the grave. In the pictures were smoke-like figures, one hovering over the new grave and one over the gate. Somebody was just checking out to make sure that they dug it right. (laughs) As my friend Jay would say, it needs to be twice dug. (laughs) (laughs) Ashley wrote in 2019, I live near the cemetery. For fun, me and my son like to ride our bikes there. One day we looked at some old graves and it started to get dark, so we got on our bikes to leave, and near a woman's grave, unexpectedly, I got a strong smell of rose and vanilla perfume. It was a smell I had never smelt before, and for some reason, it seemed to smell like old perfume. Or as Diane would say, old lady perfume. (laughs) Yes, it smelled like old lady perfume. It's possible there was a plant nearby that I just got a whiff of wind. Who knows? So this is one of those places that goes with that picture that Maya drew for us, our listener. Trust your nose picture. Yeah. There might be a ghost. (laughs) So you're taking nose pictures here. Next up, we have Highland Lawn Cemetery. Highland Lawn Cemetery is found in Terre Haute, Indiana. The cemetery is the second largest in the state of Indiana and was built on land that had once been home to a farm and a distillery bury the bodies there and they get a little drunk on the land, I guess. They get preserved. And it says (laughs) the land was very marshy, so not ideal for burying in. Maybe it was marshy because of the distillery. So much whiskey. The graveyard opened in 1884 with its first burial, who was Samantha McPherson, who died from typhoid fever at the age of 30. The entrance gate is gorgeous, featuring a Romanesque revival bell tower and Gothic-style arch. This was designed by architect Paul Leitz and built by Edward Hazeldine out of local limestone. There are beautiful statues and memorials inside and a little chapel on the hill with gabled roofs and stained glass windows. Some of the notable people buried here include union leader Eugene V. Debs. He ran for president a couple of times and was well known in Terre Haute. People visit his grave from all over the country. He died in 1926. Vaudeville actress Valeska Surratt was buried here in 1962. All 11 silent films she had starred in were lost in the 1937 Fox Vault Fire. Most of her work was done in the 1920s. She died penniless, having squandered not only the money she had made, but also money that was raised for her during a benefit hosted by an author who had heard of Surratt's dire living conditions. She apparently liked to gamble. There's a grave with a large angel standing in front of a cross on the grave of lawyer and writer Max Ehrman. He wrote the poem Desiderata. This poem was very popular during the counterculture movement. Dr. Alan Pence, who founded the first spiritual society of Terre Haute in 1867, is buried here in Section 3. The second floor of his building, Pence Hall, was a society's meeting hall. Seances and lectures were hosted at Pence Hall, and it became a spiritualist center. Pence remained a believer until his death, even though the spiritualist movement had started waning by that point. 
And Kelly, I looked up Pence Hall to see if there were any hauntings going on there because since it had the spiritualist society going on, holding meetings there and having seances, but I didn't find anything haunted about it. Huh. Claude Herbert is buried in a mausoleum off the main driveway. Herbert died a hero. He had been playing the part of Santa Claus at the Havens and Gettys department store on the evening of December 19, 1898, when a fire broke out. Herbert hadn't been real excited about the job, but he needed something to help support his widowed mother, and he'd just come home from the Spanish-American War. Children were taking turns on his lap in the basement of the department store when an incandescent bulb in the display window burst, setting nearby items on fire. There were 30 children with Herbert, and he went into action to get them to safety. He got them all outside and then heard that there may be other victims in the building. He stripped off the costume and ran back into the building, but he never came out. Some witnesses thought they saw him jump from a fifth-story window. Firefighters found two of his bones on the smoldering ruins the following day. Those remains were buried in the mausoleum, and activity has been reported near the tomb. Strange lights and orbs are seen, and weird mists have been caught on camera. And they said that he remained in the Santa Claus character to try to, you know, keep the kids calm. Yeah. Many legends are connected to Highland Lawn Cemetery. One features a phantom bulldog. His name was Stiffy Green, who acquired his nickname due to the stiff gait he walked with and the fact that he had bright green eyes. His owner was a nice elderly man named John Heinel. John died in 1920 and was buried in a mausoleum. Stiffy Green was taken to the graveside funeral and refused to leave the mausoleum. Like so many of these stories, the townspeople took pity on the dog and brought food and water to the cemetery for him. He eventually died there next to the mausoleum. The townspeople put their money together and had Stiffy Green taxidermied and he was placed inside the tomb. Shortly after that, people started hearing barks coming from the mausoleum, especially the caretaker. He heard the barks all the time. The ghosts of both the bulldog and John have been seen near the mausoleum and the phantom smell of John's pipe tobacco has also been detected. Now, I did read some other stories about this and... Supposedly, it might be legendary that they had the dog stuffed and put inside the tomb because later he was taken. And so then they had a statue made and put in the mausoleum. So I don't know which of those happened for sure, but the statue definitely was made. It's no longer at the mausoleum, though. I think it's at a museum somewhere in the town. Ah, Yeah, I'm more prone to believe that they just had a statue made than that they would stuff the dog to put it in the tomb. But who knows? Another cemetery legend is connected to a businessman named Martin Sheets. He'd been a stockbroker and then a cattle farmer. He'd made himself a lot of money, and part of what he did with that money was planning his death. He was terrified of being buried alive like many people of his day. So he designed a custom casket with latches on the inside so he could open it if he needed. He had a mausoleum built so that he wouldn't be buried underground, of course, and he rigged it with a telephone. Sheets had the phone service paid for through many years, Not sure if he expected to rise at some point years later or what. He eventually died and wasn't embalmed because if he was embalmed, that definitely would have killed him. And he stayed inside his coffin. So he didn't need those little latches on the inside. He never used them. His wife, Susan, died three years later from a massive heart attack. She was found clutching the phone in her hand at the house where she died. Her family assumed she'd been calling paramedics. The odd thing is that when they brought her body to the mausoleum for burial, they found the phone inside there off the hook. Had she and Mr. Sheets been talking to each other before she died? Whoa. (laughs) Was she saying, honey, I'm coming? Or was he calling and saying, honey, come on, get yourself over here? Not every cemetery is haunted, but we have found many of them do have a spirit or two hanging around in the afterlife. Are they unwilling to leave their bodies? 
Are they afraid of what may meet them beyond the veil? Could they just be lost in some way? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. I'm just feeling like we need to get out to a cemetery. Every time we do one of these, I just get hungry to hang out in a cemetery. I know, definitely. Just love them. And I know we're surrounded by taffophiles when it comes to you listeners as well. We'd love to have you check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Dana wrote us about the Petersburg Battlefield episode that we did. Awesome episode. My husband, Bill, grew up in Colonial Heights, which is right across the Appomattox River from Petersburg. Colonial Heights is predominantly white, so Petersburg and Colonial Heights are yin and yang. It's my opinion that segregation is the reason neither city is doing very well. Anyway, Robert E. Lee's headquarters during the Siege of Petersburg was at a place called Violet Bank in Colonial Heights. There's an interesting little museum inside, but the location is more famous for the huge cucumber tree that stands outside the house. (laughs) (laughs) she, she, She put cucumber in parentheses, so I'm not sure what that means. Bill and I have been to Violet Bank several times. It's very pretty, even though the display of Civil War medical instruments is oogie. Oh, I would absolutely love that. Yeah. We've been to the Petersburg Battlefield several times, too. Many of the earthworks are well-preserved. I've seen the entrance of the mine and the crater itself. There's a fence around the crater now, but Bill used to run up and down the crater walls when he was a kid. Oh, wow. Yeah, never probably even occurring to him that there were men who died trying to get up and down those sides of the crater. I would imagine. There's a church close to the battlefield with a graveyard where many Confederate soldiers are buried. This graveyard is said to be haunted. There's a cannonball from the battle embedded in one of the church's exterior walls. Oh, my. That's cool. There's so much history in that area. Bill worked for an electrician whose office was in a former Confederate hospital. There is a British ship buried in the mud of the Appomattox River. The river used to be a deep water port. There are French cannons placed on a bluff overlooking Petersburg that the Marquis de Lafayette used during the American Revolution. Sorry for the meandering comments, but I got very excited while I was listening to you guys. I wanted to share. Thank you for reaching out. Well, thank you, Dana. And then we had a ton of stuff that I wanted to share from the crew. So buckle in, everybody. Shalon wrote in the crew, So who has ever driven down a highway out in the country at dusk or pre-dawn and seen images that appear to be Native Americans? Crouched near the ground, confused about what they are seeing. I drive all over, but between Texas and California, I swear I've seen war scouts looking over ridges, I even saw three standing in the open watching traffic. They appear stunned, but because I'm minding the road, they're gone when I glance back to where they were. Not black dog syndrome, but very odd. One of our listeners named Kenny visited the Whaley house and Laurel commented on it. Went there as a kid, then years later with my husband. We were looking into a downstairs bedroom by the back door and my purse was in my hand by my side and something knocked it hard for it to start swinging. But it was just us and my husband who was on the opposite side. It was very spooky. Brittany and the crew wrote, just had to share this with the group that's always talking about synchronicities. To preface, my boyfriend and I have our one-year anniversary in February. A couple of weeks ago, he told me, hey, I figured out what we're going to do, but it's a surprise, so I can't tell you. Well, a week or so goes by, and I listen to episode 378 on Thornwood Castle. Being that I live about three hours away from Tacoma, the whole time I'm listening to the episode, I'm thinking, oh, I'm definitely going there. I'm talking on the phone with my boyfriend later that day, and I tell him about this super cool place that I'd really love to go to. And when I tell him the name, he goes, oh, you're kidding me. I was confused. And he goes, remember when I said I figured out what we were doing for our anniversary? That's where I wanted to take you. He grew up watching Rose Red, which is why he wanted to go there. I've never seen that. I want to go for the history and obviously the ghosts. He goes, I figured you'd like it. He was absolutely right. 
He said he's going to have me watch Rose Red before we go. I can't wait. I'll take lots of photos and report back with any ghostly encounters I have. Well, please do so. That'll be a great fun. And I always love it when we have those synchronicities happen in the group. Yeah, so cool. Ginger and the crew wrote, made lemonade out of lemons yesterday. My husband and I took the train from Glendale down to San Diego for the holiday bowl that was canceled as we were on our way down. Can you imagine having it canceled while you're on your way there? (laughs) No. So we checked into the Cosmopolitan Hotel in Old Town, San Diego, and then booked a ghost tour for the evening. Well, that's definitely making some lemonade out of lemons. Absolutely. This is all near the Whaley House that I toured in late 2019. Also, our hotel has ghosts, so it ended up being a history and ghostly evening. Historically, the area is rich in San Diego Old West. We didn't see any ghosts, but I did get out of sorts, woozy or dizzy in our bathroom. Same feeling I got at Whaley House and Zach's Haunted Museum. So I know that it means something is up. At night, my husband heard a few unexplained noises in the bathroom as well. And I'm assuming neither of them were in there. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best stops of our tour was the old original cemetery where Yankee Jim of Whaley House fame is buried. It is right in between a couple of restaurants right off the main Old Town Street and open. It was not spooky, but calm, and the history was neat. And that was the El Campo Cemetery, Kelly. Yes, indeed. And what was really fun about her posting the pictures of that is it took me back to a little synchronicity that we had is I had gone back, I flew back to California to help you drive here to Florida because you were moving here. And you said, you picked me up at the airport. You said, I'm going to take you over to a really cool place. We go to San Diego (laughs) to the cemetery. And I'm like, oh my God, I dropped, I don't know which one it was, Haunted Cemetery something or another today. And this cemetery is on that episode. And I just (laughs) thought that was so cool that I'm like, I dropped an episode about this cemetery that's across the country. And here I am standing in it the very day that I'm talking about it on the podcast. Indeed. And then we walked down and took pictures of the outside of the Whaley House. Someday I'm going to make it into that place. Definitely. And then finally, Jason and the crew wrote, on one of the episodes that Kelly and Diane did, they featured the Molly Stark Sanatorium. And funny enough, this particular episode happened shortly after I had gone there. So a little bit of synchronicity there. As I was listening to them talking about what other people experienced while there, I'd had some of the same exact experiences. There was a huge big ball of orange light in one area of the sanatorium, one light dimming and brightening back and forth in one of the windows and others, which confirmed what I saw that day. So he's hearing us talk about it. And then he's like, I had the same thing happen. One thing I was able to capture on my EVP, and I don't know if they mentioned it or not, but at the end of the session, you can hear what sounded like a scanner or alarm going off clear as day. So he shared it with me. I'm going to go ahead and play it for you guys a couple of times and see what you think. What happened to you? Could you you tell me what happened to you? And I'll go ahead and play that part again. And one more time. And I verified with him, Kelly, that it wasn't like an alarm on his phone going off. Anybody else that was with them, they didn't know what could have possibly made that noise. So it's interesting. Yeah, it was so odd because... When I first heard it, it really reminded me of those, I don't want to say old fashioned <laughs> alarm clocks, because they were ones that we used to have, you know, with the the numbers that would flip. And if you yeah. set the alarm to wake up, yeah. that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, very, very true. And the thing is, this isn't something that they heard. They heard it later on the EVP. Right. Which, you know, normally for you and I, what we would have done if we were doing an EVP session and then we hear this alarm going off, we would have said into the audio... Oh, there's a car alarm or something else going off in the background. 
I don't know. Maybe they caught something there. Yeah, it was really loud and plain as day. I want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Carrie Martinez for upping her support. We're going to be moving her into a garden crypt. And in three months, she's going to be getting her HGB logo mug. Awesome. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really could not produce this show without our executive producers. Diane, you have to stop talking. (laughs) Sweet dreams. Her skin was still soft and subtle. Subtle? (laughs) To reach the place of burial, which was either the family cemetery or the church, the coffin... The coffin? So we're going to start with the Milan Cemetery. Milan, darling. (laughs) Not overseas. Two of those pioneers were Benjamin and Lorena... I mean, it's it's Abbott. It's pretty close to (laughs) Bobbitt. Bobbitt. Poor Benjamin. (laughs) Oh, man. We know what happened to him. Snip, snip. Stop. You're so bad. It wasn't a snip. It was a chop. (laughs) The bodies were actually buried on the Abbott property, as family sometimes did at at that. (laughs) The cemetery was founded in 1872 by the Spencer Butt Lodge, number nine of the Independent Order of Oddfellows. You said butt. Go touch the butt. Of course, it could be butte. It's B-U-T-T-E. No, I like butt better. I like big butts and I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) Baby got back. (laughs) It's possible that there was a plant nearby that I just got a whiff. (laughs) (laughs) So we have to say, when people write something on the internet, I just copy and paste it. So sometimes we have to try to... (laughs) Get the punctuation right, and this person had literally written, I just got a woof of wind. <laughs> Lovely. Dr. Alan Pence, who founded the first spiritual society of Terre Haute in 1967, is buried. 1967. <laughs> you sound like Renfield. Right. <laughs> <laughs>